From the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan, this is the Voices of Victors podcast. In this episode, University of Michigan researchers, faculty, and notable alumni talk about the impact of COVID-19, the lessons learned from the first wave, and ideas for how to transform and revitalize our cities. The COVID-19 pandemic changed life as we know it, plunging the world into an anxious uncertainty. With the arrival of the pandemic, businesses shuttered, universities and schools shifted to online education, and millions of people around the world went into lockdown. U of M researchers are taking part in a global discussion about what that changed world will look like. Here is what they think about the pandemic's long-term impacts and the lessons we must take away before the next global crisis strikes. Let's start with Arnold S. Monto. He is a professor of epidemiology in the School of Public Health. Professor Monto worked with government authorities during the 2002 to 2004 SARS outbreak and thus has some unique insights. Here is what he hopes we will learn before the next major virus hits. He says, Novel viruses are not something we have control over. The one thing that is absolutely predictable is that with travel the way it is, it's going to move fast. I think that may be as important in terms of the difference between SARS and this virus as any difference in the virus. We didn't have global travel coming out of the epicenter in 2002 when SARS started in southern China. The virus that causes COVID-19 spread all over the world before we realized how serious it was. But the big problem is the fact that we were unprepared. We need to be looking at different scenarios, different profiles of severity, who is involved, the extent of hospitalization. We thought we were doing this with influenza preparedness, but that lesson wasn't really learned. Basically, a lot of the preparedness went on the back shelf. The Centers for Disease Control said, at the first big news conference on February 25th, dust off your pandemic plans, and they shouldn't have gotten dusty in the first place. We have to keep a focus on the possibility of untoward things happening and be flexible in the response. And the problem there is that it costs money, and the money comes from politicians who say, if it's not on my watch, why should I care? But we really have to keep a long, long view. When it comes to disasters, the poor are always the hardest hit. So. How do the most disadvantaged Americans recover? That's the question H. Luke Schaefer is taking on. He is a professor at the Ford School of Public Policy and the School of Social Work and directs Poverty Solutions, an interdisciplinary initiative that partners with community stakeholders on efforts to prevent and alleviate poverty. He says, quote, I have every expectation that poverty is going to go up and stay up for at least the next year and a half there is a good chance that our economic challenges will persist longer than the public health crisis. We've already started to see data showing huge spikes in hardship, especially among families with children. I'm deeply concerned about that. But I'm also intrigued by some of the ways that we, as a country, have responded, including a temporary but major expansion of unemployment insurance, which is a program that hasn't historically served low-income workers very well. My hope is that the action of the federal government and Governor Gretchen Whitmer here in Michigan will make the program work much better during this time. The other piece that was really interesting was the $1,200 per person payment. This is the very first time that we really took a basic income approach to an economic crisis. Even people who have no taxable earnings are eligible for this, and that's the first time that's ever been true. I think that's a reflection of all the work by a lot of us in the field who have shown that cash is often the most efficient way to deal with a spike in hardship. So I think we're at a crossroads where we could go back to what we were doing before 
or we could try to get as many people served by our safety net as possible. I don't know what direction we're going to go in, but there's an opportunity in this that I hope we don't miss. What about education? Many educators have moved classes online. Will this crash course in educational technology have a lasting impact on how we learn and teach? Elizabeth Karen Kolb studies this. She is a clinical associate professor of education technologies in the School of Education at the University of Michigan, and she has this to say. Connecting students' everyday lives to school is something that we haven't been doing well, and I think that has become apparent. For so many years, education technology has been the side dish. The technology can support the home-to-school connection. Thoughtful school districts will take that lesson and really start to create more blended online and offline learning with technology that encourages families and caregivers to be more involved. Meanwhile, the issue of digital access has bubbled to the surface. Now that children are remote, we're seeing that a great number are just not able to access digital learning. We're starting to see this idea of digital access as a civil right. In higher education, I think we will be seeing more online learning from institutions that traditionally did not offer as much. But I also think that universities will work hard to find a way back to the face-to-face. This is in some ways a great experiment in how much screen time is too much. We're recognizing that being social is part of being human, and human-to-human contact just can't be replaced. Speaking of being social animals, between the loneliness of social distancing and the anxiety about the virus itself, the psychological effects of living through a pandemic are already clear. But what will be the long-term mental health impact? Monica Starkman, MD class of 63, is an associate professor of psychiatry and a member of the U of M's Depression Center. She has experience in studying the psychological aftermath of disasters, including the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And she has this to say. This virus will be with us for many more months, maybe even years. Most everyone will continue feeling some degree of anxiety and stress. There's going to be more anxiety in depressed people than perhaps there was before. One of the warning signs for suicidal risk is when people have anxiety on top of their depression. So there might be an increase in suicide attempts, which is what my research found during the two years following 9-11. There may be an increase in substance abuse and domestic abuse. There will also be physiological impacts of isolation. There is something about having another person in the environment and about the sense of touch that affects and regulates our physiology as well as our mental state. So people living alone may be at greater risk. On the other hand, we have to look at resilience. If people review how they have successfully coped with other challenges, that they've succeeded in coping, they can tap into that resilience and think through specific strategies that worked well for them previously. I also think that the fact that this has affected everybody will mean that it's no longer a shameful thing to say, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling depressed. There may be a positive effect, and that's to destigmatize to help people not feel that it's a weakness when they aren't able to cope as successfully as they might like or to have these surges of feelings. The pandemic has the markings of a disaster, and there may be lessons learned that can apply to other crises, such as climate change. As we stare down climate change, we're going to face more and more severe disasters, including hurricanes, fires, and floods. What tools will dealing with the pandemic give us for handling future crises? We posed this question to Sue Ann Bell, a nurse practitioner and assistant professor in the Department of Systems, Populations, and Leadership in the School of Nursing, where she researches the health effects of disasters and how we can better prepare for them. Here is her response. 
We are still taking a reactive rather than a proactive approach to disasters, and that's one of the biggest challenges. I think one thing we will learn from this is that in good times, when there's nothing major going on, that's not the time to cut the funding. One thing that has worked well for this disaster is social cohesiveness. There's been a lot of research showing how important it is to develop bonds of trust with other people in an emergency. A key concept is community resilience, how strong the community is and how able people are to bounce back. And in this, we've seen that even though we're socially distancing from each other, people are willing to step up and help and be kind to their neighbors. Globally, there's a lot of information sharing from places that had high numbers of cases early. Italians, as they saw this coming, learned from China. We were able to learn a lot from Italy and apply some of those lessons. That type of global resource sharing is really important. Now let's turn to the economy, both for labor and business. Stay-at-home orders have led to unprecedented rates of unemployment as businesses are forced to shut down. How long can we expect to feel the economic impact? Gabe Ehrlich, MA Class of 08, PhD Class of 12, is director of the Research Seminar in Quantitative Economics at LSA, where he forecasts U.S. and Michigan economies. Here's his take. I expect it will take quite some time for the economy to recover fully. In our forecast, we get back up to approximately where we were at the beginning of this year by the end of 2022. That's essentially three years, and that's a relatively optimistic forecast. We'll have a pretty sharp bounce back in the economy as the disease recedes, but after we get part of the way back up, it's going to be slower progress from there. We know what industries will lack. Retail, restaurants, bars, hotels, and travel. A question here in Michigan. What happens to vehicle demand? We're hoping that we can see a pretty strong recovery in the light vehicle market. At least for Detroit, it could potentially be less bad than the Great Recession. I think that in terms of the severity of the shock, it's larger, but the hope is that it won't last as long. Recovery from the Great Recession was slow. And what I'm hoping is that the policy response that we've seen from the federal government is going to help the economy recover a little more vigorously this time. And finally, let's consider disruption. As people stay home and businesses close their doors, we've seen a lot of disruption to business supply chains, from things like milk to famously or infamously toilet paper. How will business adapt to an uncertain future? Ravi Anupendi is an expert on this topic. He is a professor of operations research and management at the Ross School of Business, where he researches supply chains. Here is his perspective. From a supply chain perspective, this is kind of a double whammy. When you have a supply shock and a demand shock is rare. Effective response to such disruptions requires a high degree of resiliency. Unfortunately, many company supply chains were structured around efficiency. There's a trade-off between efficiency and resiliency. Companies that have a fairly robust supply chain risk and resilience program will know how to navigate this crisis. Going forward, others will need to begin to focus on resiliency. There is a lot of talk about whether this is the end of globalization, but I don't think so. This is not the end of globalization, but the beginning of resiliency. Developing resiliency starts with creating a map of a company supply chain. This will allow a better assessment of vulnerabilities, including, for example, if your supply chain is very dependent on certain geographies or perhaps single suppliers. Beyond network structure, firms also need to think carefully about resiliency strategies within a facility. 
how is the work organized within your factory or office? How compact is that workspace? Many businesses that have been structured in such a way that people work in very close quarters will have to begin to reevaluate that. Look at the meat processing plants shut down due to COVID-19 outbreaks. Firms will have to rethink the structure of work in general to see if they should bring in more technology, maybe more robotics. Smart use of technology can allow companies to restructure work to achieve optimal social distancing, as well as find the right balance between remote and on-site work to ensure business continuity during disruptions like a pandemic. Special thanks to Amy Crawford, who is a freelance writer in Ann Arbor. She is a frequent contributor to Michigan alumnus, and she conducted interviews for this project. She also writes for Smithsonian, HuffPost, and Nature Conservancy. Coming up, where do we go from here? How do we reinvigorate our cities post-COVID? U of M faculty and notable alumni will weigh in on the future of American cities. Welcome back to the Voices of Victors podcast. Mere days after the coronavirus caused governments to impose stay-at-home orders, once vibrant downtowns became desolate. As those orders have been lifted and many businesses have reopened, albeit with new social distancing and public safety protocols, cities face their greatest challenges and opportunities in recent decades. Municipalities, business districts, and neighborhood groups are turning to architectural and urban designers, such as Kit Crankle McCullough, for help in reinvigorating urban spaces. A lecturer at the Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, McCullough has designed and directed revitalization projects for cities as diverse as Washington, D.C. and LaGrange, Georgia. Here's what she has to say. In many ways, the coronavirus shutdown accelerated changes that were already underway in American cities, says McCullough, who has a private consulting practice and teaches urban design, neighborhood development, transportation, and urban economics at Tubman. During the spring peak of the virus cases in April, for example, Telecommuting and distance learning skyrocketed, while traditional commuting plummeted. Many cities closed off streets to vehicles, allowing more space for residents to walk and bike. Home delivery of food and other items burgeoned. Downtown parking spots were redeployed as pickup and delivery zones. The pandemic also brought unexpected benefits, such as a reduction in traffic deaths, rush hour backups, and air pollution. Cities saw their cleanest air in decades. Yet McCullough and other urbanists are concerned about the long-term viability of American cities. She wonders whether the hard-hit urban areas will experience coronavirus-driven exodus reminiscent of white flight in the 1960s. Before the pandemic, downtowns were ascendant and growing because people wanted to live, work, and play in densely populated urban areas with lots of activities, McCullough says. If people no longer feel safe coming downtown and mingling with large crowds, I'm worried our cities will suffer. What American cities need now more than ever, she says, is a survival kit to repair the damage wrought by the pandemic and to speed the recovery process. Creating 20-Minute Neighborhoods The trend toward telecommuting, accelerated by COVID-19, has led to a renewed focus on neighborhood surroundings and local amenities to attract and retain urban dwellers who want the convenience of living close to shops and services cities are creating something called 20-minute neighborhoods. The concept, first popularized in Portland, Oregon, involves embedding small businesses into residential enclaves. These so-called urban villages are designed so residents can walk or bike to restaurants, coffee shops, and stores within 20 minutes. 
The value of walkable, mixed-use neighborhoods became evident during the coronavirus lockdown, when people suddenly needed the ability to access goods and services locally, McCullough says. To encourage the evolution of these 20-minute neighborhoods, cities may have to modify their zoning ordinances to allow mixed-use development with sufficient housing density to support retail shopping. Other proactive measures include offering economic incentives for small businesses, installing new pedestrian and cycling infrastructure, and ensuring any new development is architecturally compatible with the surrounding area. Real estate developer Alex DeCamp, class of 04, MUP of 12, and his partner, Reimer Priester, are co-owners of Villages Property Management. In the villages of Detroit, they have completed three mixed-use redevelopment projects along the revitalized Kirchival Avenue and restored numerous duplexes and single-family homes, as well as two apartment buildings. We believe in walkability and embrace the concept of the 20-minute neighborhood, DeCamp says. Investments in residential and retail development in the villages, he says, have improved the amenities for residents, increased property values, attracted additional infill development, and bolstered tax revenues needed for enhancing infrastructure, parks, and public safety. Previously, the Kirchival Corridor lacked any development and had a lot of crime, says DeCamp. Now, it's a pleasant destination where parents can feel safe walking with their kids. Fostering Missing Middle Housing The popularity of single-family homes has been softening for decades, McCullough says. And post-COVID, I don't see a great demand for high-rise residential towers anymore. Many residents who were cooped up in shoebox-sized apartments or condos due to stay-at-home orders are reevaluating their living situation and looking for alternatives, just in case similar orders are issued in the future. In recent years, McAuliffe has seen a significant rise in market demand for so-called missing middle housing, which falls midway between single-family homes and multifamily high-rises. If people are working from home, they want to live in a small apartment building, duplex, or townhouse with more square footage, private entrance, a balcony or terrace, and outdoor green space, says McCullough. These types of missing middle housing, she adds, can be inserted into single-family neighborhoods to add enough density to sustain small local businesses while retaining the neighborhood's original character. Urbanists call this gentle densification. Missing middle housing faces headwinds, however. Typically, real estate developers prefer to build large-scale housing projects that attract public-private investment and yield hefty returns. In addition, many cities' zoning laws prohibit the construction of apartment buildings in single-family neighborhoods. But that is beginning to change. Last year, Minneapolis revised its zoning ordinances to allow developers to build up to three residential units on any parcel of land zoned for single-family homes, says McCullough. Other cities are looking to do a similar thing to meet the increasing demand for this scale of housing. At the Minneapolis-based Incremental Development Alliance, Executive Director Jim Kuman, class of 05, and his staff are providing training and technical assistance to help developers, cities, and nonprofit groups ramp up small-scale real estate developments nationwide. Missing middle housing is the fabric of our legacy cities and one of the building blocks of our neighborhoods, Kuman says. Over the last 60 years, the relentless development of massive multifamily complexes and sprawling single-family subdivisions has left the U.S. with a mismatch between the small-scale residences people need, want, and can afford and the existing housing stock. This disconnect, according to Kuman, has been exacerbated by demographic shifts, such as the shrinking size of American households. 
People now want to live in places with walkable neighborhoods and small-scale housing, Kuman says. We're trying to help individuals and cities rediscover the lost art of developing these places. Leveling the playing field. So what about local business? Small retail stores and family-owned restaurants were shuttered for weeks during the pandemic, with many suffering catastrophic losses. The shutdown illustrated what is essential to the functioning of our society. The layers we ignored or that were somewhat hidden, such as transit, deliveries, groceries, supply chains, schools, and the public health care system, McCullough says. I'm concerned many local retailers and restaurants won't survive. Do we really want a world where all of our needs, including groceries, are only obtainable on Amazon? To retain the unique flavor of downtown shopping and dining districts, cities may need to level the playing field for family-run businesses that are competing with deep-pocketed chain stores. For instance, McCullough suggests capping the size of downtown retail space to make smaller footprint stores available and affordable for small business owners. Coronavirus-driven limits on the number of customers permitted in shops and sit-down restaurants could be eased by allowing businesses to expand outdoors into parking lots, streets, and plazas. In addition, farmers' markets selling local produce and handicrafts could be relocated to airy public parks to encourage safe distancing. Redressing Social Inequities Substantial evidence indicates that the coronavirus has disproportionately affected low-income minority residents in urban areas. We have known that structural racism in our society is spatial, literally, in the structure of our cities, but the pandemic has laid this bare, McCullough says. African Americans have been contracting and dying from COVID-19 at a far greater rate than whites. Spatial conditions, such as limited access to health care, nutritious food, clean water, and reliable transportation have increased the vulnerability of disadvantaged communities. Many urban dwellers also suffer from asthma, diabetes, and obesity because they live in food deserts with higher levels of air pollution and industrial contaminants. In Detroit, there are people who can't wash their hands because their water has been shut off, says McCullough. Some of my Tubman students were unable to continue their studies online because they lacked access to robust internet service in their neighborhoods. Conditions are likely to worsen without decisive action to mitigate long-standing social inequities, according to McCullough. I only hope the pandemic will finally provide the impetus we need to address these issues comprehensively. Looking to the future. So, what does the future of American cities look like? McCullough remains cautiously optimistic that American cities can survive the coronavirus pandemic, achieve greater resilience, and resume their growth. If you think about New York City in the 1980s or Detroit in the 2000s, when conditions were so dire, there were cool things happening in music venues and restaurants, she says. Rents were affordable, and people had more leeway for creative pursuits. With perseverance and luck, cities may once again experience a renaissance driven by hardscrabble innovators entrepreneurs, and artists. In the aftermath of the coronavirus lockdown, people have come to appreciate the value of the public realm and the social interaction our cities provide, McCullough says. I think this realization will incentivize us to invest in our cities, neighborhoods, and social structure. Special thanks to Claudia Capos, class of 73. She is an award-winning journalist and the owner of Capos & Associates. Her feature articles on research, business, celebrities, and travel have appeared in national and regional publications. The Alumni Association of the University of Michigan provides community and connection with your fellow alumni. 
Have you become a member? We invite you to do so. Visit our website at alumni.umich.edu. We're featuring University of Michigan alumni who are thought leaders in making a difference around the world. And this is a platform to tell their stories. If you like what you heard, please give this podcast a rating or review and hit the subscribe button or ask your smart speaker to play the Voices of Victor's podcast. Until next time, wherever you go, go blue.